As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open them to Psalm 119? Psalm 119. Two weeks ago, we began our summer series in the Psalms, and we focused in on this theme that the Psalms are not just God's Word to us, They are also God's Word for us. Because they are prayers and songs, the Psalms are addressed to God. And so they teach us and train us how to speak to Him. How to respond to God in the various circumstances of our lives. And we talked about the fact that because Jesus prayed and sang these Psalms, it transforms how we understand them. And it also gives us a window into Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. It gives us a window into who He is. And this week, as we turn to Psalm 119, we bring both of those themes with us. But we also see that Psalm 119 is a very surprising psalm to us. The first thing is maybe the most obvious thing. Psalm 119 is very long. It is the longest psalm by far of all the psalms. It has 176 verses and 2,500 words. That's not just the longest psalm, it's the longest book, or it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, almost doubling the second longest chapter. Psalm 119 is also an acrostic poem, which means that it is structured based on the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse in each section, it has 22 sections with eight verses in each one. Each verse in each one of those sections begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verses 1 through 8 begin with Aleph. Verses 9 through 16 begin with Bet. The next, verse, or the next eight verses begin with Gimel and so on and so forth. Anyone who has ever tried to write an acrostic poem knows how difficult it is just to get it to work and make sense, let alone be beneficial and beautiful. So Psalm 119 is indeed a work of mastery and of art. But maybe the most surprising thing about Psalm 119 is the topic that it addresses. This psalm is a 2,500-word song and prayer about God's law. The psalmist uses nine different terms throughout the psalm, all referring to the same thing. He speaks of God's law, His testimonies, His ways, His precepts, His statutes, God's commandments, His rules, His word, and His promise. If you read through the whole psalm, it's rare to find a single verse that doesn't contain at least one of those words. And all of them are praising and thanking God for His law that He has given to His people. And you might think, His law? Isn't the law a problem? Wasn't the law a burden on the Israelites that they couldn't get out from under? How could the psalmist write 176 verses praising the law? You might also be thinking, aren't we Christians? Doesn't the New Testament say that we are not under law, but under grace? Isn't the whole reason 
Jesus had to come because the law was a bad thing. Even if you could convince me that an Old Testament believer could praise the law, I just don't understand how a New Testament Christian could praise the law. And those are common questions. They assume a lot about the law that we're going to look at. But in some ways, we can't hear what the psalmist is saying in these verses until we address how we are to think about the law as Christians. And so I'd like to give a brief explanation of how the law is viewed by Christians, how the New Testament teaches us to understand God's law. And I want you to see that we as Christians, you as a Christian, ought to have a relationship with God's law that, like the psalmist, is a relationship of delight, of thanksgiving for what God has given us. The first thing we need to get straight is what Jesus says about the law. We get this idea that Jesus was constantly critiquing and flouting God's law, but we need to be very clear that Jesus critiqued the Pharisees and the Sadducees' understanding of God's law, not the law itself. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this about God's law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he did come to abolish the way that the law functioned. For the Pharisees especially, the law was a way to make yourself right before God. It was a way to justify yourself. If you could only obey the law, then God would accept you. This way of the law functioning is functioning as a covenant of works. It says, as long as you obey the law perfectly, you'll be right with God. The only problem with that functioning of the law, that relationship with the law, is that since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, not one of us has the ability to obey the law perfectly. We have corrupt and sinful hearts. This is why Paul says in Romans 7 that the law just kept exposing his sin more and more as he looked at it. It set the standard for the righteous life and continually showed him that he could not meet that standard. And so the law was a constant reminder for him of his guilt and corruption. His guilt and his condemnation. That is what Jesus came to abolish. Jesus came to take on our guilt for disobeying God's law, for sinning against him. And because of that, Paul could de declare right after what he says in Romans 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned 
sin in the flesh. Paul says that Jesus came for sin. He came to take on the guilt and condemnation of our sin. And because He did, He has done what the law could never do. He has set us free from sin and death. But is that the end of it? Is forgiveness from the guilt of sin the end goal of the salvation that Jesus brought? No. This is the question that Paul answers at the beginning of Romans 6. He asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on later in the chapter to say this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. Jesus didn't just save you from the penalty of your sin. He saved you from the power of your sin. Why? So that you could become a slave to righteousness. So that you could be freed from your sins and walk in newness of life. 1 Peter 2.24 says this so well, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did the Father predestine you? Romans 8.29 says, To be conformed to the image of His Son. Ephesians 1 says, The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What do we say every week at the assurance of pardon? If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The gospel is not just that you are freed from your sin. The gospel is that you are freed from your sin so that you might live the life of holiness and righteousness and fellowship with God that God always intended for you to live. And so the problem has never been the content of God's law. As we will see, the content of the law is a reflection of the character and the goodness of God. And so the problem is not the law, but our relation to it. Our inability to obey it, and then its inability to fix that problem. We have corrupt and sinful hearts that cannot obey God's law. And with that in mind, I want you to listen again to our assurance of pardon that, re- that Weston read today. This is the promise of Jesus' work in salvation from Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for the Christian. God has given you a new heart. He has given you His own Spirit and the heart of Christ so that you might live the life He has always desired for you to live. A life of delighting in God's law. So with that in mind, 
I'd like us to turn now to Psalm 119 and see why it is that the psalmist says that he delights in the law of the Lord, that he loves his testimonies. But before we do that, let's pray for God's help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. This is Psalm 119. We're just going to do a section of it. We're going to do verses 25 through 40. So this is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is the word of the Lord. This whole section that we just read is in the form of a prayer to God. In fact, in Psalm 119, the first three verses make a statement, and the next 173 verses are directed to God as a prayer to Him. And in this section of the prayer, the psalmist asks God for three things primarily. First, he asks Him for knowledge of His laws. Second, for obedience to His laws. And then finally, for the life that is found in His laws. First, we're going to see that the psalmist asks God to give him knowledge of his laws. We see it right from the beginning. Verse 26 says, teach me your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. In verse 29, he says, graciously teach me your law. 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And verse 34, give me understanding. The psalmist pleads with God for knowledge of his laws. He humbles himself to become a student and begs God to teach him. And at a very basic level, the psalmist might just be asking for information. He may be ignorant of God's commands, and he is asking God to tell him what his commands are. This isn't impossible. Remember, this is a time where people didn't have 15 different Bibles lying around their house. A copy of God's law would not have been readily available to him, so he wants to know what God commands. 
But the psalmist is clearly asking for more than just information in the words that we just read. Look especially at verse 27. He says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He doesn't just want to know God's precepts, his laws. He wants to understand the way of them. How do your laws work? How do they fit together? Why have you given these particular laws? He is asking for depth of knowledge and understanding. And notice how he follows it up. He promises that when he is given understanding, he will meditate on God's wondrous works. This sounds a lot like what he said in Psalm 119, 18, which says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And you may hear that and think, come on, how am I going to see wondrous things in a list of rules? A speed limit doesn't make me ooh and ah. How are the rules of God going to show me wonders? And this is where we need to realize that God's law is very different than human law. God's law isn't just what someone decided was a good idea or something that may be an annoyance to you but is probably for the common good. God's law is both a reflection of the character of God and a window for us into the good life that He intended for humanity. God's law isn't arbitrary and haphazard. It's a reflection of who He is. Theologians will often call God's law His revealed will, which means God has taken something in Himself, His divine will, and He has revealed it to us. He has exposed it to us. That's why a violation of God's law is equivalent to a violation of God's person. Rejecting God's law, His word, is rejecting Him. That's why Jesus can say to His disciples in John 14 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. 1 John 2 3 says, and, this it, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Knowing God's commandments is one of the ways we know and see God's character. But the psalmist also thinks he will behold wonders in God's law because it tells him about himself. God's law doesn't just reveal something about God. It also reveals something about you. It tells you about the way of life God created you to live. The kind of person he longs for you to be. In God's law, you are given insight into the human life and the human heart from the very one who created it. He shows you that you were created for love, not selfishness. For worshiping God, not bowing down to other things. For truthfulness, not deceit. For work and rest, not just one or the other. All of these things are exposed to us in God's law. When the psalmist asks to understand God's law, he is asking to understand both God and himself, the lawgiver and the recipient of the law. And so again and again, we see the psalmist asking God to teach him his rules, to give him understanding of his testimonies so that he can behold wondrous things. Is this your desire? 
Do you long to know the commandments of the Lord, not just so that you can pass a test or feel good about yourself, but because you want to know God and you want to know how He created you to live? Like we've seen so frequently in the Psalms, we see that Jesus would have prayed this prayer. He is eternally and completely God, but He's also fully human. And as a human, He developed in His knowledge and His understanding. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This verse comes right after we see the 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. So it's no surprise that when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what does he do? He starts quoting from God's law. He quotes Deuteronomy three times to combat the three temptations of Satan. This is actually what we see Jesus in dialogue about in the Gospels more than anything else. The Pharisees are hanging on to a particular understanding and interpretation of God's law, and Jesus is constantly correcting them and giving them a true understanding of God's law. The God-man Jesus grew in his knowledge and understanding of God's law and his ways. Is this your prayer? Do you long to understand God's law? Do you ask him to teach you, to instruct you in His ways, that you might know Him and the ways that He has called you to walk in. Asking this is living in line with the promise of the Gospel. Jeremiah 31 says, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Brothers and sisters, we ought to long for the Lord to write His laws on our hearts and minds. This is the new life that we have been given in Christ. So that's the first thing the psalmist does. He asks for understanding, for knowledge of God's laws. The second thing he asks God for is that God would give him obedience to his laws. We see this in the second half of verse 34. He says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 35 says, lead me in the path of your commandments. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. This may seem obvious, but the psalmist doesn't just want a head knowledge of God's laws. He wants to actually obey them. He wants to actually do them. And as obvious as this is, it's amazing how often you and I miss this. We think we're on target because we know God's command. Maybe you know the Hebrew word for it and can even argue about the proper application of it and show all the places in the Bible where it appears. But then we don't actually obey God's commands. John Calvin in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, says that we don't have true knowledge unless we have obedience. He says, it is impossible for any man to obtain even the minutest portion of right and sound doctrine without being a disciple of Scripture. All correct knowledge of God originates in obedience. 
The Apostle James says the same thing when he says that we must not simply be hearers of the Word, but doers also. And what I want you to see in this psalm is that the psalmist understands his own heart. He understands that he needs God's help to obey. He's a sinner. And so he has a corrupt heart that is inclined away from God. So what does he do? He cries out to God, incline my heart to your testimonies. Help me to obey you, he says. Brothers and sisters, you were never meant to muster up obedience on your own. You cannot do it apart from God. Jesus does say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But just a few verses later, he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You must cling to Jesus to walk in his ways. No one is made into a new creation apart from being in Christ. This is the difference between legalism and gospel obedience. Abide in Him, and by doing so, you will bear much fruit. The psalmist has asked God to give him knowledge and understanding of His laws. He's asked Him to give him obedience to his laws. And the last thing we're going to see is that he asks God for the life that is found in his law. This whole section, verses 25 through 40, is actually bookended with a prayer that God would give life to the psalmist. Verse 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. But the key verses to see this idea are verses 36 and 37. Look there with me. He says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. In these two verses, we see the opposite of life. We see what God's law directs us away from. The psalmist knows his heart, and he knows that it is drawn to selfish gain and worthless things. The word there is the word for vanity or emptiness. He asks God, incline my heart to your testimonies, because he knows that he is not naturally inclined to God's testimonies. His heart is inclined to selfish gain and worthless things. And that phrase, selfish gain especially, gives us a picture of sin. A picture of the corrupt and sinful heart. Martin Luther, in his lectures on Romans, describes sin as a person being curved in upon himself. The idea is that sin bends us back toward ourselves. And so we can only see our own interests. We only think to use things for our own gain, for our own advantage. In other words, 
Sin is the opposite of love. It seeks my interests instead of the interests of others. This is why when Jesus is asked to summarize God's law, he makes reference to love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Apostle Paul similarly says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. This is so helpful to see what God does in His law to our sinful human hearts. As Paul says in Romans 7, the law exposes our sin, but it also draws us out of ourselves. It draws our affections and creativity and interests away from ourselves and directs them toward others, primarily toward God and our neighbor. We could spend a long time talking about the way that the law is fulfilled in love, but I want you to see in this psalm what the psalmist is saying about what that does to you. Look at the parallel of these two verses. Beginning in verse 36, he says, "...incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways." In verse 36, our heart is drawn towards selfish gain, gain or advantage for ourselves. But look at the clarity that the psalmist finally has in verse 37. Look at what he calls the objects of our selfish gain. He says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. What he is saying is there are things that you do that look like they are going to give you gain or reward or benefit. But what are they really? Worthless. Vanity. Emptiness. They will give you nothing. And the testimonies of the Lord, what is parallel to them in this verse? Life. Our sin tells us that life is found in going our own way, skirting around God's law. That's where the good life is, where joy and delight are found. But the psalmist recognizes the lie. Life is found in God's ways, in His testimonies. Look how the psalmist says it in verse 32. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Commentator Christopher Ash says this on this verse. It's one of the paradoxes of the world that sin promises freedom, but enslaves. And the law of God seems to promise constraint, but opens the heart to a free, wild, joyful run. The Word of God opens up to us under pressure a joyful, free running. The ability to forgive and go on forgiving the ability to live without being eaten up by resentment, the ability to bear up under pressure, under those hard submissions to which all Christians are called. The law of God and the Lord Jesus Christ enlarge the heart and open the life of the disciple to run free 
in the midst of pressure. This is at the very heart of our objection to God's law. We talked at the beginning about our intellectual objection to God's law. How do we understand God's law? How do we relate to it as Christians, those who have been saved by Jesus and indwelt by His Holy Spirit? But beneath that intellectual objection is a heart objection to God's law. We are afraid that God's law will restrict us. We are afraid that following God's law, His limits, His thou shalt nots, will keep us from happiness and freedom. And in the face of this fear, the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Jesus says to His disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Who is it that truly knows the human heart? We worship a Savior who is eternally God, who created humanity, but who also took humanity upon Himself. He designed us and has experienced our life. He tells us, as those who have been given life in Christ, to keep His commandments, to abide in His love. But notice what this one who is both God and man, who knows the human heart with perfect and intimate knowledge, what does He say will happen if you do that? These things I have told you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, the life of obedience to God's law is the life that God created you for. It's the life that He saved you for. It is the life that you will live for eternity with Him. And Jesus promises us that it is the life of joy. Full and abundant joy. The joy of Jesus Himself. So we can pray with our Savior, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Would you all pray with me? Father, we need you. We need you not just to incline our minds to you, but our hearts to you. Would you give us clear eyes that we might see sin as worthlessness and emptiness and that we might see the life that is only found in you. Help us to run after you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.